0: And then
1: I I, um, really liked um, one of your quotes that I I read when I was um, researching for this um, chat. Um, When you you have to train, you have to train an athlete for the plumbing they have, not the event they're training for. Um, And like does this sort of um, fit in with your own experience, um, like with your own running experience when you were perhaps maybe like training with different coaches, so whether you, Your training with Kevin Ryan and then your experience with Barry McGee, and then how your running um, uh, consistency fluctuated. um, It's actually
0: uh, funny you should say that because during the lockdown, and I was out in some back blocks out south of Auckland, and that Nick Badeau rang me up and wanted to use that quote. Oh, really? And and we ended up speaking for about an hour. Yeah. Okay. And Whenever I've gone against that principle, it's, yes. it's always stuffed up.
1: Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, But more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to episode 59 of the Run Culture podcast. Today I have the privilege to be speaking to Chris Pallone. Chris is a New Zealand based athletics and triathlon coach who has had success at the international level with the likes of 2004 Athens Olympic gold medalist Hamish Carter in the triathlon as well as Nikki Hamblin who was one of New Zealand's top middle distance athletes. Chris has been a coach since '97 and has guided many New Zealand national champions from the 800 to the marathon. Polone also competed at a high level for New Zealand, running 2.16 in the marathon and coming 74th at the 1988 Auckland World Cross Country Championships. During the mid-80s, he trained with the likes of John Walker, Dick Quacks and Pete Fitzinger, to name a few. These days, Chris is is a very keen cyclist and a recreational fisherman. Welcome to the podcast, Chris.
0: Thanks very much.
1: No worries. Um, oh, it's a it's great to have you on because um uh i'm good friends with Caden shields and and kaden um yeah always um speaks so highly of you chris and I, I got the chance to meet you at Caden's wedding earlier in the year yep. um and yeah i learned that you're just an absolute wealth of of stories and and running knowledge um so thanks for agreeing to have a chat that's fine so Chris, I wanted to um, start the chat by just reflecting a little bit on your own running career. Um, How did you get into running?
0: Well, actually, I'm my brother and I. My, my family's a very seafaring family. Okay, I'm the my brother and I are the first generation of our family who haven't gone to sea. Okay, yeah, uh, like being involved in you know cruise on ships or in the navy or something like that so my father was a lighthouse keeper so till the age of 13 i lived on various lighthouses around new zealand but then when my brother and i became college age you know we had to go to high school and stuff we shifted to wellington and my father got an administrative job and Wellington. But i was a keen sailor in wellington and but i also played a bit of soccer so for soccer i used to do a bit of running just to get fit and Wellington is the windiest place in New Zealand. <laughs> and so I was sailing centreboard boats and a lot of our centreboard racing in Wellington used to get cancelled because of weather conditions. Yeah, just blowing above 30 knots and stuff like that, which does at least 50% of it here the yep. in Wellington. And so I used to run cross-country. I started running cross-country a bit in the winter because I was hopeless at soccer. This is just for college. Yeah. And then, reasonably good cross country, I got third in the area champs and stuff like that and started and ran cross country for Scottish Harriers and then Wellington Harriers. And then I decided because of, you know, losing so many sailing days, I would run track in the summer. Yep. And a couple of other people wanted me to crew on, or skipper on centreboard boats and stuff like that and stuff like that. And I said, oh, I'm going to run for the summer. And if I win a Wellington title, I'll I'll keep running. And I did win a Wellington title, <laughs> so I just kept running after that. I think if I would lived in Auckland uh, right from the word go, or we'd shifted to Auckland instead of Wellington, I'd still be sailing. I would never have run. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that a, was a, so it was accidental, really.
1: Yeah. And at that time, did you have a coach, or um, did any of your other the rest of your family run?
0: No, uh, family is completely non-sporting background. Yeah, okay. Interested in sport and stuff like that, but very maritime orientated. So yeah, no no sporting background at all in the family. And uh, yeah, no, gradually got coached. Uh, my first coach was a gentleman by the name of Harry Goodway. He was an ex-POM. He'd immigrated to New Zealand and so on. And then, so yeah, just went from there. Yeah
1: and and then from there um like uh what fostered your love of running so um uh like initially you went quite well and um that's why you stuck with the sport um but what what kept you in the sport
0: i just enjoyed going out for a run that was just simple that was it and then you know like in new zealand or in those days we had traditional type of harrier clubs and stuff like that so there's a social element to it, and so on, and so that's that, that's why I stuck with it.
2: Yep,
1: and and then um, from 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 there, who was um, like, did you train with a squad at the, at the time when, when you got your first coach, and 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 then how did you eventually get to be coached by Kevin Ryan um, in 1979
0: and 1980? Well, and as a runner and this has helped me a lot in my coaching, I was basically uncoachable. Uncoachable? Okay. Uncoachable, yes. <laughs> Ill-disciplined. Um, I would always do the training and stuff like that, but I was always off trying other things and stuff like that. And then about 78, I shifted to Auckland. And in those days, I was extremely left-wing. Yeah. Like I was... Pro the Moscow Olympics boycott. Yeah, all that stuff. Uh, I've now shifted to the right, and uh, but I was extremely left-wing, and yeah, very very far left. So I shifted to Auckland. I wasn't even intending to. Um, I wasn't even intending really to to run at all in Auckland, and then. After one Christmas social, I drove my motorbike over the Harbour Bridge. We had toll gates in those days. And I had the rubber plant from work balanced on the petrol tank. Yeah. Luckily, I wasn't caught. But I realised then (laughs) maybe getting into running might be – back into running might be quite a good idea. (laughs) Otherwise, things could go completely the other way. Yeah i had known Kevin slightly and he had just told me, look, if you decide to, you know, give it a go up in Auckland I'd actually met him out on a run. Yeah. And he said, Oh, if you decide to get back into Auckland, and, you know, come and come and train with me and stuff like that and I think my reply at the time was, No, I'm not planning to yep. but social activities and stuff like that and a bit of a wild social life. I thought, Yeah, this is not sustainable in the long run yeah and eventually i gave him a call and just started running with him a lot
2: and and
1: when you say um in your early days you were pretty uncoachable um was that because you were just trying your own thing and experimenting and and trying or like were you just training too hard all the time what what were you doing
0: oh exactly experimenting and stuff like that Although I didn't actually realise it at the time, uh, it was that type of process which interests me. And, you know, it continued to interest me and stuff like that. So although I had absolutely no ambitions to coach whatsoever, I was interested in the process of physical conditioning and trying this and trying that. Yes. And so that was... uh, I. I ran very well when I was coached by Kevin Ryan, mainly because he's a fairly hard man. Yeah, You know, like he was, um, I wouldn't say a disciplinarian, but he led by example and you sort of followed. And also, although he wasn't, I would say, an intellectual coach, he was very streetwise. Yeah. Okay. And so, and, and could make things work in that way. Yeah. With and his, we also got on, on well, but uh, we, yes, have some furious political arguments.
1: <laughs> With his training, what, what kind of um, principles, uh, what did the, an, a, a, a typical week look like? And what was his philosophy um, in terms of um, distance running?
0: Well, Kevin wasn't a talented runner by any means. Just hard work got him there. So it was big mileage. Yep. lots of hill work and just hilly running and stuff like that not pacific hill work we used to have an 18 mile hill course which used to do every tuesday on thursday and a limited amount of speed work mostly in the form of fartlek and stuff like that track workouts were almost non-existent yeah okay okay golf, golf courses and stuff like that or yeah yeah, we might do some reps, you know, three or four hundred meter reps, but they would be on a straightaway on the golf course or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. fairly moderate intensity too. Okay. okay. So big mileage, consistent big mileage, not very little high intensity, and also fairly similar program all year round. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and, and um, like that, that. That's when you felt like you were running you mo- most consistently. Was it?
0: Well, yeah, I sort of, I wasn't, yeah, that's when I ran consistently the best. Yeah. But also, you know, with the standard of distance running we had in New Zealand at that time and locally, I wasn't a top runner by any means. Yeah. You know, like um, with Kevin coaching me, I I got fourth on the Auckland Champs 5,000 metres and ran 14.7. But, you know, I would have considered myself criminally insane to, you uh, run that event at the nationals because you know, you just get smoked. Yeah. And so, ah, oh, Dave Morecroft was in that race. So I was third Aucklander, but, and that, but like, I remember once I ran 29, 32 on the, the track on a Monday night for 10 K. And it was, that was the Auckland champs, but it was because I couldn't get in the international meeting on Saturday. Really? Yeah.
2: So what so that was,
1: that was the, let so the run, run, running culture in Auckland, uh, in the 80s, uh, it was pretty strong, so there was a lot of depth.
0: Oh, a huge amount of depth. Yep. Yeah, a huge amount of depth. You know, like, we used to have heats for the Auckland 5,000 metre champs, and you generally had to run 15 minutes or better to make the final. Yeah, okay. And sometimes you might have to run as fast as 1440. Yeah. So, yeah, and we used to have, you know, 50 or 60 people would show up to the heats of the Auckland champs. Yeah, there'd be at least three heats,
2: yeah, okay. and you know,
0: you break it down to a 16 final. Yep, so yeah, so phenomenal depth, and that depth was also in Canterbury as well. Okay, where you had the likes of Peter Reno and uh Lowsley and all those types of people. So, yeah, phenomenal depth both in Auckland and nationally as well.
1: And around about this time, we had training um or jumping in with some training with yeah john walker and uh yeah dick Quax and and pete fitzinger or um did that, well, sort
0: of, that yeah. um i after kevin left and went worked for new balance uh 1980 81 and um so then i was coached by barry mcgee for a while and didn't run as good a lot more structured and stuff like that. Didn't think So I sort of drifted around a bit and I formed an association with Arch Jelly or was never but was never formally coached by Arch. Yeah. Okay. We would exchange ideas and stuff like that. Arch was the first person to recognize I could actually be a fairly good coach. Yeah, okay. Okay, because for my not willing to commit one way or the other and stuff like that and wanting to experiment and stuff like that. He, rec- he never told me this, but he obviously recognised that as a positive, not a negative. Yes. And then early in about 80 or 81, Arch rang me up and uh, it's not widely known, but after he won the 76 Olympics, uh, John had compartment syndrome for many years and the operations and stuff like that. And uh, then sort of about 80, 81, it came right for some reason. And Arch who had a very dry sense of humour, rang me up a home once and he said, oh, I've got this new kid, I want you to need some conditioning and toughening up and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, oh, what's his name? He said, oh, Walker. <laughs> and so he wanted, he realised Walker had, could actually start doing some long conditioning in them yep. again. And then, so I started running with him on a re- reasonably regular basis. <laughs> and in 81 or 82 that's when john actually ran his pb for the mile 34904 okay in 75 he ran 349.4 slightly yep. different so 81 or 82 was yeah he actually ran a and it was just a result of being able to train properly again so yeah and he was good, he was always you're yeah, good to train with john yeah So, you know, no mucking around, pretty steady. I used to be habitually late, but (laughs) he was just just tired by 15 minutes. And so we used to do a lot of training together. always used to run fairly steady, about six-minute mile pace, just under, just over. And this is over hard terrain too. Yep. And about that time, Quacksy had a spell coaching at Athletics West, but then he came back to live in New Zealand and – John owned a house in Duncairn Ave, which he rented to Quaxie at one stage, which had just found the corner. So then we used to regularly run 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning uh, from where John's house, where Quaxie was living. So, And I was, by that stage, I was an international phone operator with telecom, so I was on shift work. Yep. And also I ran children from work a lot too, so I could quite often start at 12 o'clock or something like that. And yep. the ship's running six or seven hours. So, and this was all around the central. So that's how I ended up running a lot with those two. Okay.
1: And what yeah. was training like? Um, so what, what would a typical typical week look like um, around, around that time when, um, yeah, you are training together?
0: Very, very sort of informal. When John was yeah. doing track work and stuff like that, you know, he would be able to track Mondays and um, Mondays and Wednesdays. And so typically our Tuesdays and Thursday runs, when he was on the track and stuff, would be pretty easy, just an hour. Okay. But during conditioning period and stuff like that, um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, we'd run an hour and a half pretty
2: solid.
0: Yep. And stuff like that. But we never never knew what we were doing when we bloody turned up. Oh, really? Yeah. uh, John was having a bad day, Or would have been a hard track wreck out the night before or something, he'd be off the back and cracky, he'd be complaining, oh, I'm not fucking waiting for him. It was, so, so it, was a, it was a very informal, yeah, very informal type of thing. But yep. if everybody was feeling good, we would be doing up-tempo running or threshold running just by default. Yeah, okay. And uh, another guy in that group who was actually coached by Quacks, was Ken Maloney, who was a 28, 19, 10K runner. Yep. And so we had various other, and then when Fitzy uh, started trading in New Zealand from about 83 onwards, he would come in, come out for the summers. He would be in the group as well. Yeah. We always hated him because he, he used to run bloody hard. Did Harder than the other lot. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. So yeah. Also, and also, you, in the summer, you in those days, we had a lot of visiting overseas athletes as well. Okay. Yeah, you know, athletes would just come and train for the summer and stuff like that. So,
2: yeah. You know,
0: mainly because of weather and altitude wasn't such a big factor in those days. I've,
1: I've seen I've seen you in other articles refer to Arch Jelly as one of the best brains you've seen in 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 all of coaching. Um, yeah. What makes you say that?
0: Oh, just a very he's one of those people who would be um well he's an exceptionally, exceptionally intelligent man for a start yeah you know most of our conversations with with him be would with um about one third would actually be on running and training methods the other third would definitely be on cricket <laughs> And probably the other third would definitely be on something to do with politics or events of the day and stuff like that. So he, he could have been successful in sort of probably any field. Yep. You know, like occasionally you get those type A personalities and they're going to be good at something. Yeah. It's just a question of what they choose. Yep. And, you know, some of them are sportsmen and like that. You know, so he's just one of those. But just a very... Uh, and in terms of how he coached and stuff like that, you know, like in terms of my sort of informal coach development, it wasn't you do this session, you do this session, you do this session. It was sort of like, a it was values and how you should actually coach. Because, like, if you sort of had contact with the Jelly family and the Jelly group, and that you were part of that family yeah, type of thing, it was sort of like an all-in compassing type of thing and um, sometimes those type of values in high performance sport set up in New Zealand particularly the structure we've got now those values go out the window yep and with some of the experiences I've had I've always gone back to those values and I think they're very important so like people I've coached in the past and stuff like that with the very odd exception I've remained in contact with all the athletes I've coached over many years and stuff like that, friendly with them, you know, see them have families and all that type of stuff, or they go through some sort of, you know, upheaval and stuff like that. But you're always sort of there for them. Yep. Yeah. So it's the, yeah, it was that type of thing with Arch. And we would sit down and occasionally and discuss, um, yeah, coaching methods and stuff like that but not it wasn't sort of these coaching methods and stuff like that it was more philosophy on coaching really which has always stood me in very good stead
1: yep and then I, I um really liked um one of your quotes that i i read when i was um researching for this um chat um when you have when you have to train you have to train an athlete for the plumbing they have not the event they're training for um And like, does this sort of, um, fit in with your own experience, um, like with your own running experience when you were perhaps maybe like training with different coaches. So whether you're training with Kevin Ryan and then your experience with Barry McGee, um, and then how your running, um, uh, consistency fluctuated. Um, it's actually,
0: uh, funny you should say that because during the lockdown and I was out in some back blocks out south of Auckland and that Nick Badeau rang me up and wanted to use that quote. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and we ended up speaking for about an hour. Yeah. Okay. And um, whenever I've gone against that principle, it's, yes. it's always stuffed up. And <laughs> the person that really reinforced me with that was when I was coaching the triathlete Hamish Carter, who obviously ran the two, yep. won the 2004 Olympics. Okay, very, very aerobic sort of animal, stuff like that. Even with VO2 max type of work, you have to be ultra careful where you could cook them. And it's, in his book, it's actually very badly put and it's actually not factual. But under some pressure from him for the 2006 Commonwealth Games, which were in Melbourne, yep. flat track. Okay, flat course, everything like that. Not yes. a hard triathlon course. So under pressure from Hamish, we did some more intense work. Yep. Okay. And he crapped out. He was fifth or
2: sixth.
0: Uh-huh. So later that year, he uh, went to Boulder and then Europe and went back on to old traditional type of training and stuff like that. Uh, second in the world champs. Yeah. Or just later in yeah. that year. Yeah, later in that year. It was his second to last race. He retired later in the year. Uh, the guy who actually finished ahead of him had missed three drug tests prior, so it was something of a injustice that <laughs> Hamish never won the never won the world champs. Couldn't happen this day and age. But yeah, it, you've got to stick with what works for them. And obviously, if, if you're dealing with a fairly slow twitch metabolism and and stuff like that, you don't want to hammer them with too much anaerobic work particularly yeah. with high lactate anaerobic work. Too so fast straight out some things and that are fine. Yeah. But yeah, you go, and as long as I've stuck to that, I've always never had, yeah. And if you go against it, you won't, yeah. Yep. It's always, it's always well, a mistake.
1: Have you carried like a similar sort of principle with um, Caden, Caden Shields and uh, his running? Because um, uh, he, he'd be primarily slow twitch, wouldn't he?
0: well as you know from the wedding from the speech i got yeah. trouble with and that there's quite a debate about his ability to break 60 seconds for 400 and um one thing i do make caden do though is run the new zealand track season
2: yeah
0: okay so, so he has uh, he's, you know he's much better at long distances on the road and stuff like that yeah the track running in new zealand you know he's he's good National level type of runner, and that's it. Oh, he has won the national 10k and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, you know, he's a broken form minutes, it's 1500 or anything like that. Okay, but I think it, I think it is important to do that sort of stuff, but don't train for it. Just do it for variety. Otherwise, yep. the marathon runner, you end up marathon build up after marathon build up after marathon build up. It's the same with some of your triathletes as well, you know, like if they're Ironman athletes, yeah, you know, they, they just end up in that continuous, yeah, and it, eventually it will shorten their career or be to their detriment or both. Yeah. You can only, yeah, so you've got to be, so yeah, I would recommend, but it, there's no way I would get Caden to go and do fast 200s on the track, you know, yep. to try and get as, 1500 time or anything like that down, but track running does provide, it's a break in the periodization from marathons.
1: Yeah. 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 I remember when he was living um, in Melbourne for six months and he would sort of, I would say, okay, then what have you got this week? And he'd go through his week. And um, I was amazed at um, how much uh, s- sort of slow running he was doing. And um, mm-hmm. and then how his, his sessions weren't, weren't super frequent like he wasn't doing three sessions a week he was um None. sometimes just doing one um yeah I, I, f- I found that really interesting um uh like he w- is this something that you have like you're like you have found that um perhaps some some runners um yeah over prescribe how much speed work they do um
0: sometimes uh definitely in terms of the anaerobic stuff because yeah aerobica you can keep developing and developing and developing with you know slow forms of speed work and stuff like that but particularly if you're eight or 1500 runner depending on whether you're a quick responder or a slow responder and you know two of the best eight and 1500 runners i've coached one was a very quick responder and one was a very slow responder you'd wonder where the bloody form was ever happening (laughs) um, Yeah, you've just got to be careful with that type of work. You don't want it. It's it's basically like putting water into a milk bottle. At some stage it's full and you can't... You know, you haven't got a bottomless pit which you can just pour it in, pour it in, pour it in, like aerobic work. Anaerobic work, you can get good gains with very carefully planned sessions. And so so that's been my... I also... I think my experience from coaching in triathlon, triathlon being a three-discipline sport, you have to juggle your three disciplines. Yep. And so you've got uh, triathlon coaching is a bit like you've got $100 to spend and you spend it wisely. Yep. So that, that carried over into my running coaching. And I think that if you have that type of philosophy, it can help with health concerns avoiding injury and stuff like that. You're, you're breaking down either with injury or with health. You know, you get sick and that all the time and stuff like that. So that's, yeah, that's basically.
1: And if, if we get back to your own running career, um, can you remember your 216 marathon and um, where, where you did it and um, how it went and uh, how your build up was and how happy were you with um, that performance?
0: Well actually I wasn't very happy because uh with Kevin Ryan coaching me, I had run two seventeen at Canberra, and I had won by a long way. Like at least five minutes, possibly more. And Dick Telford has told me since. Yeah, you know, he said that's probably worth two thirteen or two fourteen. Yeah. And I was just I was just flying that here. Yeah, I never really I didn't know bloody Canberra, was that it counted <laughs> some altitude. So my 216 was actually at South Auckland in Worry and it was a five lap course. It was effectively the Commonwealth Games trial. Yeah. I was only fifth in 216 and there was all New Zealanders ahead of me and 10 or 12 people broke 220 that day. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So yeah, i was sort of, I was happy with it, but I didn't think it was a great run.
1: Yeah. And what year, what year was that?
0: Must have been late 81 because yep. the Brisbane Commonwealth Games were 82. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, yeah, I, I, I was fit and running well, but there was a few people running better. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was sort of, I thought it was something I should have been able to do before that.
1: And did you ever want to have um, another? Did you have many other shots um, at... at um,
0: oh, yeah. yeah. D- during the, well, what I call the dark years, it was mainly trading with Futsinger, <laughs> where I was bloody bucket most of the time. <laughs> uh, there would be sort of highs and lows um, and where I'd be experimenting with certain types of trading and there'd be the disasters or DNFs and very occasionally a good race. <laughs> hmm. so I you- made the world cross-country team with a lot of help from Keith Livingston, back foot singer was injured. Yep. <laughs> so I wasn't tracking to
1: so, it? So you reckon that's why you ran well?
0: Probably, my <laughs> <Hell> much certainly.
1: <laughs> Can you remember that race? Cause that was in Auckland in 88. Um, and uh, yeah, like, were, were you happy with, um, was it 74th?
0: Yeah, I was sort of, um, Obviously, it was was a home race, so we had a trial and stuff like that. My main regret about that period is um, I didn't run a really top-quality 10K on the track at night because I definitely would have run under 29 minutes. I won the Auckland Champs that year, but Mount Smart was being resurfaced, so it was was held at Lloyd Ellsmore Park, which was basically a football field. Yeah. (laughs) And... And I think I ran about 30, 50 on rutted grass and it was gale force conditions as well. So I was in, I was in really good shape. Keith Livingston had sort of taken me a hand a bit by then and I was, yeah, a little bit, I was getting ideas off him and stuff like that. So yeah, so my training was very much moderated, although the mileage is still pretty high. And... Um, yeah, being a home. Shortly after that though, I tried a marathon in the States but shortly after the World Cross Country I got a type of almost glandular fever although it was never diagnosed and I never ran to that level again. Yep. Yeah, I was just um, stuffed. I, I did run quite well when I was 40 but by that stage I was coaching and stuff like that. I ran a 228 marathon and a 31-minute 10K as a master, and I won master's road champs in cross-country, but that was more in through intelligence of training.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah. I was,
0: I was doing about 60 or 70 miles a week by then. Yeah. Not 110 miles a week, and I, I knew what I was doing. I'd moved into coaching and stuff like that. But, yeah, being sick after the World Cross-Country Tour three weeks later, <clears throat> I'd never, never really had the recovery and stuff after that. I don't know, maybe
1: it was just old age, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> but, yeah um, I, I, I read, I've jogged down another really good quote that um, I got from um, another article. Um, you believe in hard work, but the most important part of the training program is recovery. Without recovery, no form of ad- ad- adaptation um, yeah. occurs and, and, and how do you go on to the next level? Um, so yeah, I suppose, is this something that you sort of learnt from trial and error as a, as a runner and then... Um, i mean it's still a common mistake that i see um these days with so many young runners anyone that's enthusiastic like it's it's an easy trap to
0: to fall but, into but basically trial and error yep and uh, i remember early 90s this is another war story yeah. ken maloney and i we, we thought we might have a go at commonwealth games trial marathon or something like that uh-huh and um but we thought we'd run Rotorua beforehand. So we did a bloody big buildup. Uh, I was still working at Telecom, so I could basically do what I wanted. Yep. And uh, Phil, Phil Clode had shifted to Auckland as well. And so we had a big trading group. And Ken and I actually ran 2.30 for a marathon about three or four weeks before Rotorua. Yeah, okay. Okay. And then on race day itself, <laughs> I was sitting in the lead bunch at halfway and I thought, shit, I'm just going to win this easy, you know, I'll walk it. Yep. And 10K later, I was walking. <laughs> <laughs> and Maloney, who had started a little bit slower than me, he, he got sort of into the lead group about 30K. And then he blew to bits as well. And anyway, staggering back into Rotorua, <laughs> it's a circuit. It's a circuit. You can't well you either your mate's probably not gonna get you in the car if you pull out. So you, you gotta finish. So we were trying to get jelly beans off the same person on the side of the road. <laughs> and uh we both ran about two forty, but it was an example of just chronic overtraining and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think several years later I went back there. And I was running about 60 miles a week and I ran 228. Yeah. Just through using your brains. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, yes. So that, that's, that particular road of a marathon was the biggest learning curve I've had in terms of recovery and managing your training and stuff like that. And also going with triathlon going, coaching, going to more than non-weekly cycles. Yeah. Okay. So as you can fit that recovery in. Because if you go at a bloody hammer and tong seven days a week in a three-disciplined sport, even though two of them are non-weight-bearing, there's only one way that's going to go.
2: Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah. Very occasionally, you will get a superhuman ath- athlete who can absorb that. But they're very, very few and far between.
1: Yeah. Um, and then how did you strike up a relationship with Hamish Carter and how did you really sort of venture into the coaching realm? Um, yeah. Like after your, um, your own running?
0: Well, he was, I had started working. I was given a job at North Shore base, first of all, part-time coaching and he was a member of the club. Yeah. Okay. And his then coach Jack Ralston had gone overseas to work with Nike. Okay. And I would never allow this to happen now. Okay, so Hamish was getting advice off me and coming to some of the sessions I used to run the domain and stuff like that. So, 97 and 98, I was sort of indirectly coaching him, really. 99, 1999, Jack came back to New Zealand. And so we had this sort of like coaching by committee situation and stuff like that. Hamish didn't have a good world champs in 1999. And I had some e- unease about the situation. Okay. These days, I wouldn't let it happen in terms of that. Hamish is, you know, a nice guy and stuff like that. So before the 2000 Olympics, I distanced myself from that. Yeah. I said, Hamish, you've got to go one way or the other. Yep. And so that's it. So he went with Jack, and for various reasons, it was a failed campaign. Okay. And a lot of it came down to the plumbing you've got. Not that was, yeah. Yep. So my initial thoughts with Hamish after 2000, we remained in contact and stuff like that. But I had thought he may compete for another year or two probably for money making purposes and then shift. And much to my surprise, he contacted me in early 2001 uh, about a more formal coaching relationship and stuff like that. And so it went from there. But I had had a lot of experience with him since about 97 or so. Okay. So yeah. And then obviously with that, you know, it was just one thing rolled into the other really. you know, there's a few war stories there. Hamish is quite a difficult athlete to coach, was he? <laughs> yes, and not, not high on confidence either. Okay, Me- mental resilience was not his strong point around competition and stuff. Yep, okay, and also, um, just gradually got things together. I, when I started coaching him forward, I never thought he'd win the Olympics. Yeah, okay and even in olympic year i didn't think he'd win the olympics wow i just thought and then suddenly about two weeks before i thought holy shit he's going to win this really
1: so what what do you think Uh, changed
0: well he was just he's a diesel yeah and it just got fitter and stronger fitter and stronger and it is very very difficult to handle in his olympic builder he wanted to do more harder and it was quite tense at the training camp that we're at and for some reason i was in quite a good headspace with coaching i sort of just held my ground yep and, that, and considering i've never ever well i can't swim and considering <laughs> i've never ever done a triathlon <laughs> You know somebody could have said, Well, you know, what the hell are you listening to these guys? But I had a fairly good idea of what would be required, yeah, and stuff like that. And Hamish and I weren't, um, even now, he's he's definitely not my best friend in triathlon, yeah, but we were the right people at the right time for them,
2: yeah,
0: okay, we, we complimented each other, so and it's. It's probably it's a lesson that all those some of those very oh, big campaigns, Olympic campaigns, and stuff like that. Sometimes they're not the most pleasant campaigns.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you much know, pressure.
0: Pressure. Although I didn't worry about the pressure, particularly in two thousand four. I was very new. That was my first ever New Zealand team as as a coach. Okay, so I was completely in that. And also Mark Elliott, who was the high-performance manager for uh, Triathlon New Zealand, was first his first ever New Zealand team. So, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. So we just did things logically and simply. And so the team was a good, it was a good team. And Hamish was difficult to handle, but eventually controllable. Although yeah. he didn't realise he would win.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so... Even- uh, there was some, so when in terms of like building up his mental confidence and um uh and then also encouraging him to sort of like not not have to do all those really hard training sessions like um like i think i think that's um that's that's part of coaching isn't it and and then the other well
0: he also yeah. he did one tremendous session exactly two weeks after the olympics okay How uh, shit he's going to witness. <laughs> uh, but didn't tell him. Yeah, And he was also always prompting me and coming to see me about, and he wanted some type of inclination about how I thought he would go. Yeah, And I wouldn't, I refused to do it. <laughs> refused to do it. I wouldn't. Okay. And that added to some tenseness above us. And I remember the night before the race, he came to see me. And I wasn't aware. He had a little bit of a mental letdown and um, got on the phone to his wife in New Zealand and she gave him a fairly short send-off. She said, I'm at home stuck with two kids and it's the middle of winter and it's pissing with rain and they were young (laughs) children too, so nappies. And she said, you're complaining about being at the Olympics? Yep. (laughs) And that's that. But he came to sit the night before, we were all in the... Um, uh, just an apartment down near right here And he said something which he said, Whatever happens tomorrow, he said, I'm just going to go out and enjoy this race. And my immediate thing was, he doesn't know he's going to win. Yeah. He's going to win. I thought, why do I stay here? And so I just said, I said, That's good, Hamish. I said, When you're in that state of mind, you're relaxed and you make the right decisions during the race. Yeah. And then I said to him, no matter where you are in the field, I said, you couldn't outkick a giraffe. So <laughs> it'd, be be- it'd be better if you've got to move on with a K and a K and a half to go if you're, if you're in a head-to-head with somebody. <laughs> How was that? That was the end of discussion. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, so he has amazing clarity about what happened in that race when you hear him speak I, I would never hear him speak or speeches and stuff like that but we went to a couple of um training camps which were paid training camps i heard him speak and i thought wow it's amazing you remember that yeah and that because somebody somebody asked him. they said at athens they said oh on the run hamish you look so good yeah i look like you could have just gone at halfway and won by 30 or 40 seconds which is probably correct but he said no he said my coach had warned me it was very hot conditions and stuff like that 38 degrees celsius and stuff like that no matter how good you feel be careful yeah and i thought that's amazing clarity to remember that because i'd actually forgotten i'd actually forgotten saying it so yeah. oh. so it was, a, it was an interesting campaign but not one which i was when it was finished i thought no oh, that's it we can go home now Yep. <laughs> I, awesome. didn't, I, I didn't expect it to make such a huge, made a massive impact in New Zealand because they, I think they basically interrupted the the network news to show the triathlon, and of course New Zealanders finished first and second. So, like, it had a huge impact. Yeah. Uh, my biggest disappointment was, um, and he must have been sitting on the bloody laptop the whole time. Arch Jelly sent me a delightful email. Oh, really? Um, and I, I lost the email somehow. Oh, <laughs> just as a one-liner, <laughs> and <it was> just, <laughs> I've always regretted losing it. Oh,
1: and that was a congratulations yeah. sort of email.
0: Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but typical arch—very dry and stuff like that. And Pete Petzinger must have—he got out of the blocks about ten seconds later because they were the first two emails waiting when I got back to the Olympic village. So, but I had really had no idea the impact it had in New Zealand until I got home. Yep. And I was very negative towards that. I basically became recluse and stuff like that. Didn't go to any of the celebrations and stuff like that. Yeah. I thought thought our reaction in New Zealand was an overreaction. Yeah. Yeah despite being a coach, I think in New Zealand, we still take sport too seriously.
1: Yeah. 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 But, yeah. Um, like, like I, I suppose it's, it's doesn't take away from the amazing achievement. Like, um, like pretty phenomenal to, I mean, we're still talking about it in 2020. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And also in, in sport in New Zealand and that, from Mark Elliott and I not really knowing what we're doing, it's sort of held up now as the perfect campaign type of thing. <laughs> and yet, you know, it was a very, um wasn't a well-funded campaign or anything like that, but it was just a simply run campaign and stuff like that. You know, it was just doing the basics right. And as an example, if you do do the basics right, eliminate the stuff-ups, yeah, you can succeed at the highest level yeah and obviously no drugs either yeah, yeah right. so that you know that was a big factor
2: yeah
1: I, I think it's um really um awesome to hear the insight that um yeah just uh the the lack of confidence um yeah that hamish had um yeah um and that that's that's it. that's um i suppose encouraging for any runner to hear um that uh, yeah, you can you can achieve amazing things um, uh, with persistence and the right the right the right training regime and um, yeah a well directed training mm-hmm. regime.
0: Yeah, and he was he was an experienced triathlete by then and well travelled and stuff like that. So travelling overseas and stuff like that didn't worry him. You know he's familiar with Europe and stuff like that. So some of the age old problems. Which you have with just athletes being away from home and stuff like that. You don't, and also by that stage, you know, he was married and had two children, so he didn't do yep. big overseas stints by that stage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which I have done those big overseas stints with other athletes and stuff like that, and they can be, they can be tough work.
1: What have been some other memorable moments? Some other memorable coaching moments with some of the other amazing athletes that you've um, coached.
0: Well, actually, I don't... I'm very... This is one thing Arch Jelly taught me as well. Yeah. Arch just used to like the process and getting a person to the high level of their potential. Didn't matter who it was. Yeah. Okay, so in terms of actually coaching Hamish to win the Olympics, I don't actually count it in my top three coaching achievements.
1: What were your top three?
0: Uh, one... Uh, many years ago, this and I was early to coaching as well,
2: uh-huh.
0: and this is when we had a very good standard of women's cross-country in New Zealand. I coached a, a Maori lady, Karen Murphy, who was a policewoman, to win our national cross-country against a good field. Yeah. And um, she was a policewoman. and She was a former basketball player, and because of shift work in the police, she started running. That's it. She so she couldn't play team basketball and, and stuff like that. And then a friend of mine said, Oh, this girl's quite good and stuff like that. And you know, so and I, I coached her for a great many years and she got in the top ten in the world mountain running championships and stuff like that. And you know, won a few track titles and stuff like that. Don't think she ever got to the World Cross. And she had been a in her youth, she had been a vegetarian for ethical reasons. Okay, so she's one of those girls who always had trouble with iron levels and stuff like that. And the, yep. and it was just to get her metabolism to. I think we used to get her to eat chicken liver and mussels and stuff like that. Which, like that. So that would be <laughs> one of my. You know, that, that, that'd be one of my top efforts. Yep. Um, yeah, getting Caden to Doha last year and Marathon, yeah, that a rank up there. Oh, for sure.
2: Yeah, that, was,
0: that, that was a good campaign. And um, particularly his effort at Doha, I think he ran the highest above his ranking of any athlete in the world champs. Yeah. So, and that, but largely that was due to him though, because you had a short backup from Gold Coast to Doha.
2: Yeah.
0: And you had to go to two hot weather camps and stuff like that. And some athletes would just rebel at that. Oh, I'm not doing that and stuff like that once he sort of got a heat up, he may be going. He really, in terms of heat adaption and stuff like that, he was on to it. You didn't have to... Other athletes struggle with that. Yeah. And uh, and Athletics New Zealand, both with him and Malcolm Hicks, did a good job. Yeah. In terms of that. So in liaising with Athletics New Zealand and some of their staff and like that, and Steve Willis in particular. Uh, yeah. You know, because Doha was obviously a yeah, it was a challenging event, yeah. <laughs> the climate <laughs> condition, uh, even though the men's race was very much better conditions than the women's race, the women's, which was a bloody death march, yeah. yeah. Whereas the, the, the men was actually runnable, so in terms of that, you know, because I had exchanged some information with Steve Willis, who was over there. Yeah, you know, we thought 222 or 223 might get you in the bloody top 10 or yeah, 12. Sure bearing in mind the women's conditions but then yeah men's race day turned out a lot better so it was actually quite fortunate we hadn't given Caden any pacing yeah we discussed privately what to do away from Caden this was Steve Willis and myself but then in the end Caden said I'm just going to run it on field yeah yeah so that that worked out quite well whereas if we Gone into a big analysis of climatic conditions and stuff like that, and with the conditions in the men's race being obviously not good but better than the women's, we would have been off the mark for that. Yeah, it could have been so. And I I, I was in New Zealand, but obviously had people over there. Pete was there, he's the CEO of Athletics New Zealand now. Yeah, and he had texted me in the morning. He said, Oh, he said, conditions are a lot. I don't know whether I'm getting acclimatized, but.
2: It's not too bad. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I like
0: I
1: like that. Um, uh, what you said about like um, some of the proudest coaching moments have just been getting getting whoever the runner is to really reach their potential. And and um, hmm. I I really saw that with Caden because like before he ran all, um, Gold Coast um, and that two fifteen, he didn't know what he was going to run um, at the marathon.
0: Oh, uh, his um, yeah we. His training before his uh, his build up for Gold Coast was actually too long. Okay, he got to run that a month before. Okay, but I had actually had a good up year. You sit down with him at March when I was at New Zealand Track Chance, and we'd mapped out something what needed to be done, how fast was our tempo running needs to be, and stuff like that. And yeah, we had a pretty it was a fairly basic plan, but it's quite a good one yeah so you know he, he so by sitting down with him at his home in Christchurch, I you know, had a fairly good feel of what needed to be done and obviously after that i was working by remote control because i was in belgium with another couple of runners yep
2: how how
1: is, um, important is planning and um periodizing with running because um, i've, I've he- heard you mention it before and and um uh like like we've we've and and setting up a plan for Gold Coast um, like it obviously worked um, like I, I feel like a lot of runners um they don't they don't they don't um, give planning and periodization enough of a uh, a thought and they just sort of do what's 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 on the calendar in two weeks
0: I think if you're if you really, and this is probably in any sport, particularly a sport which relies on fitness like triathlon, how fit you are is basically how you're going to go. Not team sports like hockey and soccer and stuff like that. But in terms of how fit you are sport and how acclimatized you are, you know, distance running or triathlon, I think it's everything yep. in terms of that. And otherwise you're just going to be, you know, just another another person there you know, you got to be right on the right day. Yeah. Yeah. So, something that Mark Elliott said to me after the boys had been first and second in Athens, we went for a bike ride above Athens, just to have a bit of an explore and stuff like that. And Mark said to me, he said, Oh, I've played, he said, we're the king of the world for a day. <laughs> and I said, And I said, it was only one day, Mark. And he said, It was the right fucking day, though, wasn't it? <laughs> And I thought, good thought. Yeah, so that's it. So, you know, like, potentially if you go to the World Champs or Olympics and stuff like that, you know, there's quite a, particularly near distance events and events which are affected by climatic conditions. There's a number of factors there and there's probably a lot of people who can win or medal and stuff like that. But then sort of, it it, it comes down to, you know, over half the field craps out. That's what Arthur Lee used to say, you racing about 20 or 30% of the field because the rest of them have you know, they've raced too much beforehand and they haven't raced enough or they're sick or injured or stuff like that. So you're only racing a small percentage of the field. So yeah. you can you can basically make your odds better and better and better and better as you go along. So, yeah. so I think it's everything. It's got some interesting connotations now though because of the, obviously we have the IAAF points system Ah, uh, yeah. In terms of that and also there's a point system in triathlon in terms of actually how many positions your country qualifies and everything like that. And obviously all that's gone out the bloody window the C19. But so there's some interesting things now. See, in 2004 it's a simple campaign. Yeah, athletes selected. the Olympics is there. That's it. You don't have to worry about anything else. But nowadays particularly in distance running with the IWF point system and stuff like that, you've got to, You've got to get enough points, but not spend all your, all your hundred bucks and stuff like that. So there's some interesting connotations there.
2: Yeah.
1: So when you're preparing, um, like say Caden for a marathon, uh, are, are you ever like just giving him a base phase and then sort of like, um, and then, then slowly, um, slowly introducing more specific work towards the end and, and at a period where you wouldn't race, um, or uh, is he never too far away from a, a, a race? Um, so, like, if you looked at think- um, Nick's, Nick's, Nick Bidot's guys, uh, Melbourne Track Club, they always seem to be not too far away from a, a race. Um,
0: well, or- Caden's, Caden's essentially doing a reverse periodization because he will run the track season yep. and then build up for a marathon. Okay, yeah. so obviously he didn't go to Rotterdam, it was aborted. Uh, before Gold Coast, he'd run the New Zealand track season, run New Zealand 10K, ran a fairly fast half after that, and then went into Pacific Marathon stuff. Yeah. Okay. So he's essentially done a reverse periodization uh, right the way through. So it's it's just a question of periodization. I carry most of it in my head, so I've got an idea, and then, but when you're going to go to an athlete with a plan or something like that. You've, um, I've usually done some sort of formal sort of work by myself. I just go away in a quiet, public libraries to best place actually. <laughs> and you yeah, write, this, this is good. Okay. This is, you, you sit there quietly, very quietly. And yeah, this is how I think it should go. Yep.
2: Yeah. nice. And
0: I learned to do that stuff well with Hamish because Hamish, you better have done your bloody homework because you'd be ready to pick holes in it straight away. So if you went to him with a plan, had to be a a good one.
1: Had to be really well thought out.
0: Well thought out and stuff. Not in terms of actual sessions, but in terms of, yep, this is how you go. And also there's some just uh, there's just some logistical things, you know, in terms of actually travel is a massive thing now. Yeah. In terms of travel and not getting sick and, you know, planes are basically flying flu factories and, <laughs> you know, health concerns, stuff. so you just work through the basic stuff. But sometimes the training is not actually too much of a mystery. Yeah. It's yeah, not too much of a mystery at all. It's just how you place certain things and stuff like that. Like, we had a pantry out the back here, and if I throw every ingredient I've got in the pantry... Into it, it's going to taste like shit. Yes, <laughs> but, but if I select very carefully out of the pantry, I can probably create something which is pretty good.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really good yeah. analogy.
0: That's a, yeah. So that's yeah. So planning and periodisation is one of my strong points. Yeah, and I have given advice to other sports, and that in New Zealand either on a formal or informal basis, in terms of that. Okay, so that's what the actual sessions and stuff like that themselves i monitor them but i'm not too fanatical about them the biggest mistake i see in new zealand is um what i call test match sessions yeah sessions to see how fit you are yeah we we might as well go and bloody race (laughs) sessions are meant to be whether it be long aerobic running, long steady state running or stuff like that. You have a period of recovery and you adapt and you get better. And that, that's like it with any form of training. And I see a lot of it, it's a real bugbear of mine in New Zealand. Guys firing out these bloody phenomenal bloody sessions and they can't remotely back them up in race. Yeah. Whereas not was where just doing sessions to an optimum. Okay, so you get that kick on them.
1: So like I've got a few athletes I'm coaching and I reckon they do a few test match sessions. And despite what I say, um, we have some athletes um, that are prone to doing that. Like how have you or what are some tactics that you have used? Like do you use heart rate monitors or do you get them to do some physiological testing um, uh, so that they use some of those sessions are more governed by heart rate to try to hold them back?
0: Yeah, all those things. Yep. And if I had access to a portable lactate yep. analyzer, you know, just pick up I would also use that as well. Okay, so physiological testing, particularly for your lactate threshold heart rate, is that that's the basis of everything for me. So I work everything back from that. Yeah. Like I know Caden can run a marathon of ninety to ninety six percent of his threshold heart rate. Yeah. Okay, that's that's basically a up tempo marathon pace, and you can extrapolate everything out off that. Okay, so you work out what their threshold pace is. A lot of I get athletes do quite a lot of stuff at what I I, I used to call eroded power, but it's it's now called critical velocity, which is the zone between threshold and VO two max, exactly halfway in between. Yep. Uh, mainly because it's repeatable you can do quite a lot of it and and stuff like that so but i work i've used the jack daniels tables everything like that but i define in terms of velocity and stuff like that and in terms of heart rate i've also learned to do some physiological testing in the field myself
2: okay
0: okay so i can get athletes to uh girls (coughs) excuse me girls are much better than this of boys because their pace judgment is a lot better yeah To do five minute blocks in the field like around the Auckland domain or something like that, normal training pace, a bit faster, steadier, and so on. And you can, when they can say their name with difficulty, they're about their lactate threshold. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so that's it. And I've, I've done that and then backed it up with lab tests. Yeah. i have only ever one beat out. You, really? So. I can get it with one beat, and that may be conditions on the day yeah so i can get it exact providing i'm there on a bicycle
2: yeah mm,
0: yeah okay so i've always been that's and awesome. in the old days i used to get people to if they were doing a lactate threshold run or they were doing broken threshold intervals so i used to get them just to say their name yep yeah. just say their name and if they could say their name and stuff like that you know they were right just on the edge i always just make them say their full name too
1: <laughs> what middle name as
2: well there
0: was, one, there was one hilarious session in 2005 on mount eden yeah and i was getting hamish carter to do these three or four minute hills but just at threshold okay and he'd come over to the top hamish carter anyway there's this guy out walking his dog and he said um he said, you coach this guy? I said, yeah. He, he won the Olympics last year. I said, yeah. And he said, you don't know what his name is. <laughs> 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 uh, rather than launch into a long physiological expression, I just said, oh, I need reminding sometimes. <laughs> but that, yeah, but that, that, that was the, like, the very green-fingered method we used to use.
1: I think those, it's great yeah. because it's practical. Like, um, Very practical. A lot of yeah. people will listen to this, and, I mean, that's, that's, um, that's, yeah. such, that, that's really cool, um, I think. Um, yeah, you got
0: to uh, – for the threshold test in Philadelphia, field, I've found the girls are spot on. Yep. Because for some reason, their pace judgment – and I always tell them to go out at normal training pace, and everybody always goes a bit quick, but it stops them going too fast. And then, so once I've got those things broken down, yeah, I use that. So I use the Jack Daniels tables and stuff like that. Before big track sessions and stuff like that, um, before key sessions and stuff like that, real key sessions and stuff, I'll look at weather conditions and stuff like that. Yep. And training partners and stuff like that. Because I I coach two or three people by remote control and stuff like that. So Uh I'll look at, yeah, Who's going to be with you and stuff like that? Yeah. So I'll take a close look at that. Or if I'm in Auckland with people, we'll plan track we're going to use. If it's going to be the 8 1500 runners, if it's going to be a terrible day, you probably postpone it. Yeah. Mm, depending on your racing schedules and stuff like that. So we'd have to, um, yeah. So good. Planning and periodisation, quite good on the Pacific stuff. The in-between stuff, I just tend to let it.
1: Yeah, nice. Um, you yeah. mentioned Lydiard b- before. Um, what influence did Lydiard ha- have on you? And um, yes, some of your your training um, these days.
0: Not really. Came came and spoke to the so I didn't know Lydiard hardly at all. Yep.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah, I probably would have spoken to him once or twice in my life, even when he lived in Auckland. Okay, so that was it. I wasn't. I'm. I'm going be careful what I say here, but yeah, I'm often pinpointed as a linear coach. Mm-hmm. But I think things have moved on a bit since then, particularly in terms of actually individuality on mileage and speed and tempo work. Yeah, and I think one of the point of differences with Peter Snell had was Lydia was he felt there was too much Pacific and anaerobic work and stuff like that and those phases should be shortened. yep and reading through the books and stuff like that, I would 100 percent agree with that. I think you can get um, I don't think anybody everybody can run 100 miles a week, particularly in one run a day. like oh, I was pretty bloody hard but 100 miles a week and one run a day plus supplementary running on top of that, that's hard going yeah and basically and also not in the modern era either unless you're a fully professional runner you've got to remember in the 50s 60s and 70s employment situation wasn't like it is now yeah you know, when I worked at telecom I could basically have any shift I like it used run to and from work <laughs> like I was sitting on the bloody ass. yeah and, that's it. Yep. and uh, in the 70s and 80s in New Zealand, we had a free education system. So you could you could take 10 years to do a BCom. Yes. <laughs> and that's what people used to do. Now, that's all changed now. So we had a lot less pressure in society
2: mm-hmm.
0: in terms of that. So, you know, how people like Malcolm Hicks and that do, you know, he's a full-time engineer. Paul Hamlin coaches him. Yeah, that's one of the... Yeah, he's extremely well organized okay so those things and caden as well caden runs to it from work and stuff like that so you can you can do it but it's hard yeah okay, in terms of that so in terms of the Lydian, well first of all how do you define Lydiard? yeah you know, what's a Lydian program if it's just lots of aerobic running well been there and done that yeah it's 12 weeks of 100 miles a week, six weeks of six days a week, hill springing, four weeks of anaerobic work, and then coordination and stuff like that. While well, things have moved on a lot since then, yeah, and also it's not applicable in the modern day with your point system. Yeah, basically, they had Olympics once you're selected, work backwards, do what you want. You basically had a blank sheet of paper. And it's easy to do it when it's like that. And then that's the situation we had in 2004 in triathlon. Olympics, athletes selected. The whole in between bits is we could do what, there was no barriers to us. Whereas, you know, nowadays. So I think the main thing with the Lineage Program was in the late 50s and 60s, and also in Australia with people like Percy Saraki and that. You just had a generation which was, it was basically like having a Formula One car, which was two or three seasons jump ahead. Yep. Without all the moderation you have in Formula One now, you know, they've had to slow the cars down and stuff like that. But you basically, in terms of, say, car development in Formula One, you had a team which was one or two seasons ahead. So they, they won everything.
2: Yeah, okay. Then the
0: rest of the world sort of caught up. So, yep. yeah, so you've got to, you know, you've got to manipulate that a bit. I'm sort of halfway, you've got Lydia which was a very structured program and stuff like that. And then you had people in Australia like Chris Wardlaw, Deeks, Monaghetti and stuff like that, where they had what they call a complex type of program where they did the same thing all the time, but they, Change the emphasis yep. through the the cycle and stuff like that. Now, they reckon they were Lydia training as well. <laughs> okay, which I would say no. Whereas I'm basically in the middle.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay,
0: so I don't believe in a fully complex program like Grab Wardlaw and so on, but I don't believe in a fully structured 12 weeks of mileage four weeks of hill and stuff like that, I'd be, be in between.
1: Nice.
0: Yeah, so that's the best thing. Going. Obviously, in Australia, you know, you've had tremendous success with that and obviously with very good coaches like Pat Clehesse and stuff like that, there was manipulation within that cycle. So yep. they would have had a form of periodisation.
2: Yeah.
0: In terms of that. Yeah, they're eight 400s on a Thursday night. So, yeah, they might be running in the 72s in the off-season or something like that. You
1: know 64s or 65s in season stuff like that yeah, yeah. So, nice yeah. so the, the the sessions stayed the same but the the emphasis and the intensity varied um depending on where they were in the season
0: yes and yeah. i i believe that is a form of periodization yeah that's well.
1: that's cool um yeah, what about so, like I, but...
0: i'll go so Sorry, you go. Ahead.
1: Oh, um, what about? Uh, do you still put some importance on hill strides and and um, bounds and and drills um, that Lydiard was yeah, pretty famous famous for sort of um, promoting?
0: I think one of the again, it gets back to your like your triathlon coaching hundred bucks.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, and if you're looking at forms of supplementary training, you're looking at uh, some type of drills you're looking at and I believe to be a good 8 1500 run now, out you have to lift yep so heavy weights line with heavy weights particularly but not yeah so I'd lift him yeah that because it's it's complementing what you haven't got through running which is just like my favorite is deadlift uh-huh but it's got because um Hamish Carter used to lift weights and it was quite an important part of his program, but previously he was a roller, So he could Olympic lift. He knew how to do that. Yeah. But some runners they're they're not they're not um you know, they, they're not predisposed to lift it. Yeah. Okay, so you've got to give them fairly simple lifts and stuff like that. And I believe for lifting you should lift for power. Yep. In terms of that, because that's gonna speed is horse you can exert on the ground mm-hmm. but if you're talking drills and stride outs hill bounding and stuff like that and lifting twice a week then you're just getting into another form of overtraining yep. so you've got to be very careful with that so I have I like people to do some 30 second hills throughout the year Yep. Okay, because that's fast, relaxed, about 1,500 type of effort. And it means when you go onto the track and do faster stuff than that, you're ready to go straight away. Okay, but I don't believe you should do huge amounts of... um, When I was coaching Hamlin and Hamlin, Paul Hamlin and Nicky Hamlin, both uh, different spelling and not related. um, Yeah, I... I used to get them to lift as well, but not do too much over supplementary and also a greater than seven-day cycle so as you can pretty with again. Otherwise, you just end up this conglomerated bloody mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Turns out. But I do some type of 30-second hills all year round. If you're lifting, lift for power and perhaps even have a different periodization for each lift. Yep. So you might do 10 lifts for power all year out. But your other lifts, you would do just basic lifts, you know, reps of 10 or 12 or something like that. Whereas for power, for deadlifts, you know, you do sets of four and three sets of four. Yeah. Yep. Quite heavy and you maintain good technique and your wrists are strong enough and stuff like that. So I think you've got to be careful. It's the same with the analogy of the pantry. Yeah, you know, like
1: don't chuck them, everything in
0: everything into it so i think that's got to be yeah also depends on the type of athlete are they resilient are they not resilient and stuff like that it's like a yeah that's what coaching is It's not just this session works the session doesn't it's actually applying it some, some sort of viable sequence yep in terms of yeah how they how that's going to work yeah or not work those cases
1: yeah so so coaching sort of applying applying the training appropriately to the athlete um and acknowledging that each athlete's different and um yes um i suppose learning learning as you go um and seeing what 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 certain athletes respond to um certain certain um i suppose training and um and then I suppose.
0: Yeah, for some of the, for the the 8 and 1,500 runners, I learned a lot when I was coaching Paul Hamlin. He was fourth in Commonwealth Games in 2006 in Melbourne. And through a system of trial and error and stuff like that, I particularly for the anaerobic work and keeping some sort of lactate threshold running going all year round, and even during the track season, learned a lot on that. And then, So when, once you're in form, a little bit like Lydia, I don't believe in keep hammering the anaerobic stuff. Do threshold running and stride outs and stuff like that and just maintain your stuff. <laughs> Whereas the big, big temptation with the 8 and 1500 runners is to keep going at it. And then eventually uh, they crack.
1: Yeah. So. Um, who, who are some of the athletes that you're most excited about coaching currently um, uh, at the moment?
0: Uh coach a, a young guy in Dunedin, Ollie Chignell. Yeah, and this is last year junior, and um, yeah, he's he's pretty talented, and the the delay in the. The C-19 thing actually is a bit of a godsend for him because Olympics being postponed because he was, uh, he won the Oceania Champs last year, yep. slow tactical one. So he's got good points. And under our selection policy, he would have been an outside chance to the Olympics.
2: Yeah, okay. In
0: fact, in fact, the selection policy, although I didn't write it, was if I did write it, I would have, and be chronically biased, I would have come out with what they've got. I don't know how they got that across. <laughs> so, but then, yeah, he's, yeah, and he's an example of a very late developer as well. Yep. And he's streetwise and he knows what he's doing. He's, he's got pretty good basic speed, good head on his shoulders, a real natural distance runner. And he's a late developer as well. He's 22 now, yeah, biologically 19.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So he's going to get, and also, you know, he's, um, Who I'll say vertically challenged. <laughs> <laughs> he's a little small guy. Yep. Okay. His BMI is around about 18. Okay. So he's small, thin, and stuff like that. So, you know, we hear about all these athletes and that who have to go on drugs and stuff to get themselves lighter and stuff like that. He's, he's just like that. Yeah. No matter what he's. So he's got a lot of stuff going for him. He's also got a good head on the shoulders. He went 1346 in Europe last year. Uh huh. And he was a little bit sick when he ran that as well. Yeah, wow. And uh, late last year, he was possibly going to run the Yeah. And we actually used an altitude tent with him prior. And uh, the boost in his fitness through an altitude tent was amazing. Yeah, okay. But uh, unfortunately, he stress fractured in his sacrum straight afterwards. Okay, and that was a big blow. So the we could have pressure-cooked them for those April, May, June races in the States to points and stuff like that. But as soon as the C19 thing came along and stuff like that, we just gave them a long recovery. Caden Shields has given us a lot of guidance in this. Caden thinks with Chignall, he said through altitude and stuff like that, he said his cardiovascular development just totally outstripped his muscular and skeletal development because he's still growing. Yep, and you're pretty unlucky with the way that happened uh-huh. so his the delay for him is a godsend
2: yeah
0: okay in terms of he's now very fit again and stuff like that but it's just taught us a little bit but he's a very talented runner and that i could <laughs> uh, he ran 27 something for 10k and he Late last year, he was probably capable of about thirteen thirty for five k. Straight after the altitude, yeah, yeah. But that's not—he doesn't. uh, But he's just a—he's just a very talented runner with a very good head on his shoulders. Nice. That's that's... running's not a a mystery to him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, sort of, very smart kid knows what he's doing and stuff like that, and sort of slightly. He knows he's good,
1: <laughs> but I think uh, I think to be really good, to, to be really good, you have to have that.
0: A little bit, but also you, at some stage, he's the type of person who can graduate from provincial running to international running. It's not going to phase him. Yeah. Whereas you see some people, they can't make like the jump. They you know they look brilliant domestic wise and stuff like that. They go to a major championship or stuff like that and. They're just like they're like fish out of water. Yeah, you know, it's like like I can see them at the food hall at major championships, Olympics, and Commonwealth Games and stuff like that. You can you can just look at them like good, bomb, <laughs> good, bomb, <laughs> stuff like that. You can just it's how they handle themselves in those situations. I took him to Europe last year, and yeah, you know, yeah, I think he, he got into the D or E grade of Houston Zolder. It was in the after-match program, and he ran 13.52. Wow. Didn't worry him. I'm just going to get out there and run. He still got rolled by some German guy. Yeah. So, and we were trying to get him into the same races, Matt Baxter and stuff like that, but, you know, couldn't swing it and stuff like that. But he just, yeah, okay, that's all right. So we ran to another disastrous 1,500 race in Watford. Yeah. We travelled across from Belgium, and we were told, oh, the pace is going to be 156 and 800 and something else and stuff like that. I'd oh, be a good race to just be able to send yeah. somebody back. Anyway, so we rock up in Watford and the guy said, "Yep." Yeah. So the organiser did say to me, he said, I think some of these guys are pissing into the wind. They so didn't <laughs> think it was going to be as good a race as he promised. Anyway, so the first 800, 205. Oh. So it was just bloody hopeless and yeah. finally ran about 3.52 and got rolled by you know, half the field and yep. the guy who won it being 3.40 the next week. Oh, but wow. that didn't, yeah, it didn't phase him, you know, you yeah. just, whereas some people would go to Europe and stuff like that and they can't get in the exact race or it doesn't go exactly like this and stuff like that, it's just a major disaster, you know, they just freak out and stuff like that, whereas his ability in that situation is quite and I think when you're learning the ropes and stuff like that, both in triathlon and middle and long distance training, you have to be like that when you're in your apprenticeship and stuff like that. Whereas if you think you're only going to perform well if everything lines up like that, like that, like that, you won't. Yeah. You, you won't succeed in So we see these, I suppose you see it in Australia, domestically they look like a million bucks and then internationally they I call them serial bombers.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So that's it. So that's, and you see that in a lot of sports, endurance sports, in terms of that, they just can't handle it. And Olympics is, um, it's uh, if someone goes to the Olympics and they think they've been the centre of attention at home, and everything's gone into them, and then they go into an Olympic atmosphere, and there's a whole load of people exactly the same and you're not the top they can't adapt yeah i've said olympics and the particularly olympics where you've got so many sports and people not so much with the IAA world champs but it's like i said the olympics is like salmon swimming upstream and trying not to be eaten by the bears <laughs> you can't because eventually you can see people just paralysed in that atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, you no, know, they can't handle me There's all sorts of things that can go wrong in those situations. And yeah, so. yeah, that's yeah, so
1: there's true. All, like I've I've seen so many runners perform so well domestically, and then um, it seems like it's just a different ball game when you're on the road and um, traveling in a different country and dealing with flights and different time zones and and all the other stresses um on the road
0: yeah those are, those are i've traveled most years since 2004 and that that's particularly so and also you know in a country i've spent a lot of time in france and it's not english speaking and stuff like that you know and some athletes just can't handle that so yep. whereas i always like to sort of embrace the culture a bit and stuff like that so when I go to Europe, the first thing I look at is uh, the Tour de France schedule, <laughs> the Wimbledon of <schedule, laughs> how I'm going to get test cricket online in Belgium. Because <laughs> you've got to remember when you're overseas, particularly with the runners, if they're racing, they're not doing a lot of trading.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of free time and stuff like that. So, how you use that free time and stuff like that. So, I always, yeah. So, I think when I went to Belgium last year, I was asked at customs. What are
1: you here for i said oh, i'm coming to watch the tour of france <laughs> which was sort of <laughs> semi-correct <laughs> oh now chris I, i'm i'm so wary of of the time but like i feel like you've you've um like this chat has been so great like you uh there's so much um gold nuggets um and, and so much pearls of wisdom um yeah i'm so so grateful for you agreeing to have a chat chat today um yeah i suppose the last thing i wanted to just um ask ask you about is how, how's your cycling going these days and and what ha, how you how you're cha- channeling your um yeah yeah like have you found it fulfilling to go from a runner to a cyclist and um uh does it still feel devoid?
0: Oh, cycling's different okay okay if you crap out in a race cycling It's never the rider. It's always position on the bike, race wheels, equipment, this, (laughs) that, and the other. So, also at my age, I'm 63. Yep. So, rather than try and um, get weight off your own body, the, the best idea is to get Weight off your bicycle. Okay, that's that, that's the best way to do things. This, this is the way we do things in the E-grade counties, which is quite a restricted type of membership. So yeah, anything I've, I've said in this whole conversation doesn't apply to cycling and also my cycling. It's always someone else's fault. <laughs> With the athlete. So actually, no, it's been quite good. We've had club. I've been club racing uh yeah we've had club racing back for quite a few weeks now yeah. okay so it's been quite good first of all we had the limit of gallons was 500. Uh-huh. i've been sick sec- seconds and thirds yeah and stuff like that and, and nice. master's grades but quite good. i'm doing a time trial in hamilton on saturday so oh really bloody interesting how far is so that trying to, to bend my body onto my time trial bike mm. is going to be Somebody will have to nail me on it in the morning and just <laughs> hope it holds together. So, uh, because I'm not, yeah, I've got back trouble and stuff like that. Uh can be, I think it'll be 20K. I'm half thinking about going to our club nationals in July. Yeah, okay. Half thinking about it, but debating about bit. I'm just a good club level cyclist, really.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh. I'm lucky a three-hour twenty marathon ride and cycling but but it's good
2: fun
1: yeah that's that's the key thing isn't it
0: yeah that's awesome
1: all right thanks so much chris for the chat um yeah um yeah absolute um yeah privilege and an honor to, to chat
0: that's fine